Hello and welcome to the post-Christmas edition of the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. I hope you got everything Santa asked for. I wanted one of those 23andMe DNA kits, but I did not get that. Uh, What I did get, instead of getting that kit, I got a daughter who didn't want to go to sleep and was crying her head off that Santa wasn't real. Oh. Meanwhile, I'm building the big Santa present in the basement because every year Santa leaves the big present uh, out in the living room. And this year, it was the uh, uh, the basketball, the double shot. All right, so you get the two people, the pop shot, I think is what they call them. Oh, nice. Okay, so Uh, like a side-by-side. Right, the side-by-side little basketball game where you try to get as many shots as you can in 60 seconds or whatever. So that that was the big Santa gift this year. So I have that in the basement Mm. with me uh and then jay lynn is coming down the stairs crying her head off that santa's not real thinking that we she heard us talking about having to make the santa letter and oh it was just a disaster total total disaster somehow we talked her off the cliff got her to believe santa is real got her to sleep i didn't get to sleep till 1 30 in the morning perfect Anyway, th- this was the introduction for me, being the Denver 7 traffic anchor, Jason Luber, here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. I'm pedestrian advocate Joseph Peters. I also wanted a uh, DNA kit for Christmas, but not for me, but for my dog, and I didn't get that either. So I will never know where Jude came from or what he is. My in-laws got one of those. They, My uh, my uh, brother and sister-in-law, they gave it to my father and mother-in-law for their dog. Yep. Yep. I first time I've ever seen this. Dog people are crazy, man. And this is yet another example of why dog people are crazy, because now they're analyzing their dog's DNA. It's crazy. Yep. Now, they think that they have some kind of a cocker spaniel mix, that it's mixed with coyote or fox or something, so they want to find out what this dog is. <laughs> so it'll be interesting to see what happens here. But, um, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, super, uh, I'm super excited that Santa is basically gone. Um, okay. And that... But Christmas is, he gone is over. No, well, I don't. For Jay Lynn, it might be. This is it. This might be it. This might be the last Christmas that she really believes that Santa is doing all these different things and bringing all this stuff over to the house. How old is she? Uh, she's ten. Yeah. Fourth grade. Uh, have you? What about the Easter Bunny? Is she still in on the Easter Bunny and the tooth? Well, fairy? I think this is going to be a cascading event. I think this is going to be the the lightning bolt that that makes all of it over. Yep. Done gone so we'll see what happens we're gonna have to have the talk with her sometime this year easter bunny's the perfect time man like by the way although i i probably should not be giving out parenting advice seeing as there are no children in the peters household not yet not at least yet amen M- maybe on the horizon we'll see uh christmas is over it's on to new year's uh i like actually working new year's i'm working all week next week, including New Year's Day. It's it's I know. Look, it's dumb for me, the traffic guy, to be working this week and, and next week because there is no traffic. Uh, the only traffic is really going up into the mountains for people to go skiing. And I don't mind working New Year's because uh, for me, I had New Year's what long time. I mean, I went to New York City for the millennium. Okay. okay, uh, okay. So I don't need to go to any more New Year's celebrations. And I thought it was always a little ridiculous when you go to... New Year, you're celebrating an event that happens in one second, and then it's over. You're waiting, 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 bang, it's midnight, it's over, and then you go on about your day, right? In yeah, that, in, okay. In that okay. Kind of, can you see that? I mean, you're really waiting for this one specific moment in time. It happens, 
then it's over. I don't think you should let anything get in the way of a 24-hour party, which is exactly what New Year's is. You have the 22 hours before the ball drops and then the two hours after before everybody passes out. I guess I really am not that big of a well, party I'm, with other people. I don't, under, I don't understand how you did New York City, man, because I, I cannot stand being packed that close to that many people for that long a period of time. Well, here's how I survived that. So it was at the time of the Y2K and all of that stuff. I was working at the, the KOA radio at the time. Uh -huh. And so I called and got it approved with the New York City Police Department to get a press pass for me and Gina. Oh, wow. Right? So we didn't have to wait in the throngs, in those corrals of people for 12 hours before the event. We were able to show up at about 10 o'clock. And then just walk through those areas where you're able, all the police and everybody else, all the other media are able to walk around. We were actually hanging out right outside of ABC, outside of where Good Morning America tapes their show. Okay. Uh, and then the pe person that was pushing the button to drop the ball, or make the ball go up, or whatever it goes, uh, was behind us. And then the ball was in front of us uh, for the whole thing. So it was it was good. Um, it was fun. That was the only way we could really survive it is not having to be corralled in those in those horrible stalls all day. Completely agree with that. To me, there's nothing better than a nice, classy New Year's Eve party, whether that's classy wearing your finest dress shirt with your friends in an apartment somewhere or classy at a uh, $100 a table event at a Chinese restaurant downtown Denver. That's where it's at, man. It's when you're just mingling, you're sipping fine spirits, and you're enjoying the company of others as you prepare to ring in the new year. I, I, I could do that, maybe. But at this point, in, I just really don't care. Yeah. I just, I am, <laughs> I am a, I am the get off my lawn kind of curmudgeon at this point in my life. I mean, I turn 30 in two weeks. Maybe I'll hit that point too. <laughs> you're, you're coming up, you're coming yeah. up slowly, but surely behind me here. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. So, so anyway, New Year's is next week. That ought to be fun. Uh, and we'll see what 2019 holds in, uh, for us, not only here on the podcast, but for the world in general. Uh, we have a big show today, actually. We, we will talk a bit, uh, in a bit. With Rod Hillman. Rod is the president of a company called Breckford Traffic Safety. And we're going to talk to him about this new camera system that they're testing. It's designed to attach to the back of these emergency vehicles, including tow trucks. And it takes pictures of move-over law violators. Uh, then they can send out either a warning or citations automatically to those offenders. Uh, so we'll talk to Rod about the technology and the legality of that system because there are questions there on how legal this system might be and how they could send out tickets mm -hmm. um, and how all that's going to work. Not at all. Probably the answer, but we'll see what he says. Yeah. But first, we haven't had any sailing news in a bit, so I present this to you, Joseph. Offering what they describe as an unforgettable opportunity to get up close and personal with the region's marine life, sources confirmed this week that Boston-based cruise line Harbor Excursions has begun operating daily whale ramming tours. Representatives for the company say that its newest expedition allows customers to marvel at the beauty and sheer size of finbacks and several other species of whales native to Massachusetts Bay as they are spotted, pursued, and violently rammed and slammed into by the company's 45-foot diesel-powered tour boat. Kicking a fight with a whale. I love it. <laughs> Our new tour gives passengers a chance to observe firsthand some of the ocean's most majestic animals as we relentlessly bash into them at speeds up to 40 miles an hour, said Captain Richard McDermott. <laughs> God bless New England. 
<laughs> While out on the open water, aboard our fully equipped ramming vessels, passengers will be able to relax, enjoy breathtaking views of the shoreline, and marvel at the sight of a beautiful, majestic whale taking direct hits square to the ribcage. <laughs> I don't think I could go on with this. <laughs> Terrible. Oh my goodness. According to the Harbor Excursion website, ticket holders will enjoy a complimentary light continental breakfast on deck as crew members navigate the bay's krill-rich feeding grounds in hopes of barreling directly into a 55-foot-long long humpback whale's spinal column the moment it breaches the water's surface. <laughs> That's the sort of sailing we need, man. Oh my goodness, there is more to this, but I don't know if I can get through it. Additionally, officials confirmed that all onboard experts will explain to passengers how gravely battered whales produce complex vocalizations or songs in an attempt to warn their pods of danger as they vainly attempt to evade the tour company's sonar-equipped watercraft. <laughs> oh, man. Quote, I, know, I always knew these animals were impressive, but there's nothing like being out in the water and seeing these enormous creatures get run over right in front of you and actually feeling the deck shudder when their bodies get caught in the ship's prow, said Loretta Foy, who noted the company's guarantee that customers will see at least one whale bashed into unconsciousness or they will receive a voucher for a future trip. Oh, man. <laughs> Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, the captain told reporters that the 120-person tour tends to fill up quickly, and they're typically booked by families, corporate retreats, and elementary school field trip groups, all of whom, he said, are left completely in awe while watching whales take full brunt of fast-moving five-ton vessels directly into their midsection. <laughs> oh, sounds like an interesting excursion on the open water. Especially for an elementary school classroom. We have enough whales to do this, right? I would I would think so. I mean, they're plentiful, I think, yeah, aren't Japan they? Japan says you can hunt whales now. It's all good. I, I've never been whale watching. I, I guess I wouldn't mind going whale watching. I don't know about whale ramming. Whale ramming um, sounds exhilarating. Doesn't exhilarating. It Not something I would think seek out to do, but I guess if it was there... Obviously, that was an onion satirical column, but it made me laugh out loud. But in real sailing news, a Royal Caribbean ship that had changed its course due to a storm found and rescued two sailors who had been stranded at sea for 20 days. Royal Caribbean's Empress of the Seas, they were sailing between Grand Cayman and Jamaica when some high winds forced them to divert away from their planned route, and when that storm... Uh, came through, they had to change their, their they were going to go to Cuba, but they had to go a different way because of these winds. Mm. So they found uh, these crew members were operating their little radar system. They noticed an anomaly in the water, and it turned out to be a small fishing boat floating in the water, and in that fishing boat were two fishermen. Royal Caribbean called for an emergency rescue. They pulled the two men out of the water. The two men are fishermen from Costa Rica. That's a long way away. Their nightmare began when they when they were out in the water, and those same strong winds blew their boat into unfamiliar waters while they were sleeping on the boat. Apparently, they do that. They go out, sleep on the boat. They're doing fishing. They do excursions, I guess, overnight. Uh -huh. But when they woke up, they realized what had happened. They had blown been blown way off course, and they tried to get back to their, their area, their fishing area, but they ran out of gas, and they only had enough food and water to last them, they said, seven days. 
One of the fishermen was so weak he could no longer walk. The cruise ship crew had to carry that person into the tender and then onto the cruise boat. They checked him out by a doctor in the uh, cruise ship hospital there. They They got rehydrated. They were fed. They were clothed. And then they were taken to a hospital in Jamaica to get checked out and then uh, get returned back to Costa Rica. That's terrible, man. Yeah. Can you imagine not eating for 13 days and still living? It's, a, and, it's and remarkable. What, what you're taken down to? The, wow. the crew of the ship collected about $300 among them as a gift to help these men buy additional food and clothing after leaving the hospital. The one thing I've always noticed when I've been out on a cruise ship is just the vastness of the ocean when you're really looking at it from from the ship. I mean, this ship is, is huge, and obviously you have all the comforts in the world there. But like any ship, it can sink. Like any boat, it can sink. And you look at the vastness of the little bit of you that would be in that water all alone without this ship. It would. It, it's, it's frightening. Yeah. It's terrifying. Absolutely. It's also terrifying that the crew could only put together $300 among the cruise ship <laughs> to help these people who had spent 13 to, tw- to 20 days without 20 food. days without, yeah. Ask somebody else on the cruise ship for money, man. There's enough high rollers on these things that you could have at least got it up to a grand. A grand. Yeah. $1,000. That's it. This is the worst GoFundMe I've ever seen. But we, uh, yeah, that, that that is true. Um, but I was also thinking there were some other stories about this one kid who fell off. Uh, he was autistic. And, and they think he was he fell off a cruise ship and he, they thought maybe that he thought he could go swimming and, and he jumped off the boat. Yeah. There, it's just so va- there's no really no way I would think as just a person out there for more than a day you could really survive floating around the water without anything to help you float. Right. Not like just on your back is what you're, what you're right. saying. Right. If you're just yeah. just you in the water, that's real bad. Maybe if you had something to float with. That could help you out for another day. Yeah. But it is just so vast out there that it's 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 it really is terrifying. Yeah. I, I mean exhilarating, it is beautiful, but it's also terrifying all at the same time. Uh, changing topics completely. We're very familiar with the move over law here in Colorado. There have been many high profile campaigns to make sure drivers know to move over for first responders, and that even includes tow truck drivers. Even so, there are drivers who just won't move over a lane or slow down significantly when they come up to an emergency vehicle, especially when they're sitting right there on the side of the road out of traffic. I know if I was sitting on the side of the road, I, I see traffic blows by really quickly, and it does make a difference when people either slow down or obviously they move over. Now, there's a company that has created a camera system that can keep an eye out for move-over violators while the first responders are then free to do all the work that they need to do. Joining us here on the show is Rod Hillman. He's the president and chief operating officer, Breckford Traffic Safety, to talk about their latest piece of technology. Rod, thanks for joining us here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. Sure. So tell us about this move-over camera. What's it called, and how did you develop it? Sure. So the the, the camera, uh, the, the actual name of the uh, camera is called the Argos Guardian. Uh, and what it, uh, you know, the, the, the origin of it was through, you know, our, our background is uh, dealing with law enforcement uh, in various capacities. And we were approached by, uh, we're located in Maryland. And years ago, the, the Maryland State Police approached us when the, when the move over laws were first being uh, 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 put on the books and asked if there's a way to enforce this because we did a lot of technology work. At the time, uh, the technology was too big and bulky, too expensive. Just It just wasn't right. Uh, 
so fast forward uh, to, to, to the past year and a half or so, um, we were uh, talking to actually a jurisdiction out in, uh, in Ohio, in South Bloomfield, Ohio, uh, and they specifically asked us the same question. So we started looking at it again, and uh, ultimately, you know, we spent the past year uh, developing this uh, product, which essentially is a combination of radar and uh, high-resolution cameras that capture, uh, identify, capture, uh, record, and transmit move-over violations. So I often see an emergency vehicle parked at an angle right there when they, especially the fire trucks, when they come up to, let's say, a crash scene of some sort. Uh, so is is this camera system able to uh, work if the vehicle is not parked in a perfect position or does it have to be just basically per, uh, parallel with the traffic that's flowing to be able to work properly? Uh, great question. There, uh, the answer is yes. It can it can operate uh, within a certain uh, 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 within a certain range of uh, angles. And what I mean by that is the way that the, the camera's positioned. There's three cameras. There's one that captures a 180-degree view of the, vi- the, the approaching vehicle and the passing vehicle to show that that vehicle did pass uh, in the adjacent lane. The second camera is looking at the lights, which is, is a requirement in, in all uh, uh, move-over laws that the emergency lights must be operating. And the third camera is looking at the rear of the vehicle for a tag shot. So the way our digital radar uh, works is it, it has a radar beam there's an angle that, that essentially uh, captures the entire roadway, not just the adjacent lane. And so if, it depends on the agency's uh, policy. So if some agencies have a policy of parallel parking, others most have a policy of, of some type of angle, typically a 45-degree angle. So we, can, we adjust it somewhat, but for the most part, uh, it operates uh, uh, under those conditions. Now, when it comes to major emergencies where fire trucks are in the middle of the roadway, and, and positioned around an accident and things like that. Uh, the current version isn't, uh, isn't designed to necessarily uh, deal with that, although we're working with some, uh, we're working on that for, for the upcoming version. And I guess it would be the same for tow trucks, because obviously when a tow truck is in the mix trying to clear, let's say, a flipped-over car or even just a car that's crashed or disabled, broken down, they might have to maneuver in a super, certain way that, that maybe doesn't capture all the traffic that's coming through. Correct, and, and and you know, and many times in an, in an accident situation, uh, there's you know, you might be cars might be funneled over to the shoulder of the road. There might only be a single uh, way to pass, and things like that. Um, the, the, the the sort of the the large majority uh, of the, the of these violations, it might seem like an odd thing, but. It's more dangerous in some respects when it's just a simple operation. An officer is on the side of the road uh, writing a ticket to a pulled-over vehicle, or a tow tow operator is on the side of the road uh, uh, hooking up a a vehicle for a tow. And that's when the traffic is flowing freely and and flowing by at speeds, you know, exceeding the speed limit and not necessarily moving over. So you've you've tested this technology. So I'm going to throw some numbers out there and just correct me when I'm wrong. I'm I'm guessing the average amount of time for one of these stops where you would need the move over law is between 30 minutes and an hour, somewhere in that range, right? 
Actually, no, much uh, less than that. Okay. The, the average stop of a police vehicle is, uh, it, it, you know, and we've done our testing is we've done initial testing. It's not like we've done nationwide, you know, you know, extensive uh, uh, studies. But the, the the in our testing, it's been about ten minutes for a police uh, pullover and uh, about 15 to 20 minutes for a, for a tow operator. So in that time, how many move-over violations do you typically see? Are we talking like one or two every minute, or is it less or more egregious than that? The, in rough terms, um, it's about, in the, in, in, in the overall studies we've done, which is about six at this point, um, in, in, uh, very, in a few different states, uh, the uh, totals are, are about one per minute for uh, police cruisers and about uh, two per minute for uh, tow operators. So if you wrote a ticket for all those, how quickly does the revenue add up? I mean, in a 10-minute stop, you're talking about potentially two or $3,000 worth of tickets, right? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, it, it becomes a decision for the, for the agency that, that ultimately decides or wants to implement such a uh, you know, the technology, some have talked about uh, potentially doing a warnings program. So instead of, in, instead of uh, doing public service or in addition to public service announcements and other things, perhaps issuing warnings, because the ultimate goal is to educate, uh, educate the drivers and decrease the behavior. Uh, but in terms of those who, who decide ultimately to do enforcement, um, it becomes a question of what, what is the fine amount, you know, how are they going to enforce it? There's a, there's a whole set of issues that need to be looked at um, by uh, agencies, ultimately, uh, if and when uh, the technology is introduced. We're speaking with Rod Hillman, the president and chief operating officer of Breckford Traffic Safety, about their move-over camera technology, the Argos Guardian. Rod, I, I want to know about how and when somebody is identified as a move-over law violator. Is that then car, as you said, it was uh, photographed, you get the license plate, and then is it a, you mentioned a warning, but also I was reading in, in at least in the literature from the, about the, about the Guardian that you can send out, or at least the police agencies can send automatically a citation to that driver. Now, it, it, well, I have a follow-up question to that, but let's talk about that part first. Okay. That, yeah. Let me unpack that a little bit. So, if you look at um, from an automated uh, enforcement standpoint, photo enforcement, if you will, or you know your typical red light and speed cameras, um, there are various. You know, certain states have various laws, and they and they vary uh, in terms of how they're they're uh, worded. In many in many states, uh, it's based on the registered owner of the vehicle. Uh, in some other states, uh, it's based on the the driver of the vehicle, meaning it requires identification of of, of the individual. Uh, and I believe that I believe that is the case uh, in Colorado, for example. It requires uh, that type of information. So our current version of the system is designed for registered owner uh, uh, identification, meaning what we're what we're uh, identifying in the uh, capture is the rear of the vehicle uh, and, and a tag shot. Uh, so it doesn't typically capture uh, um, the, the, the any any information about the driver. Uh, what was the other part of that? I, so well, it's, well, what I'm getting to other part of that. Yeah, well, what I'm getting to as part of that is at least here in Colorado, we have our photo radar 
vans that will sit around Metro Denver for the most part, and they take pictures of, of drivers, yep. and they take their – you could see the driver, you could see the license plate, you could see the car. Yep. In your instance, as you were just explaining, you're just seeing the vehicle not – obeying now when those citations are sent out technically at least in colorado um because of the way our law is you have to have a sign up ahead of where that photo radar vehicle is and then secondarily when the citation is received it's really not technically uh uh, a citation the same you would get if you were pulled over and then handed a, a a summons to court by a officer which a ticket really is is a summons to court you're being served you have to come to court or you can plea down, if you will, and that's what you're doing by paying the, the ticket early, and you don't never have to go to court. You're basically taking a plea bargain. Now, in this instance, do you, do you have to figure out state by state how all these laws are different, since you're definitely not taking a picture of the, uh, the offender? Because I could be driving Joseph's car, and then he gets the ticket for something that I actually did. A- absolutely. Uh, um, yeah, the... the- it is like I said. It's it, it varies state by state. Uh, there, you know, it's not consistent across the board. And you know, we're, right now we're at the very you know initial stage. We're just uh, beginning uh, to release the uh, the product in the early part of next year. Um, so, in ter- you know, as you've seen, I'm sure in some of the articles and some of the studies that we've done, our initial goal has been to um, first. Prove, you know, everybody knows anecdotally that this is a problem, uh, but nobody, to our knowledge, has ever actually done studies to actually say, all right, well, let's let's make sure we have a problem. Let's count the violations. Let's actually do this. So the next stage, uh, depending on the state, uh, states that that ultimately decide that they're, they're interested, uh, is going to require some additional legwork uh, to allow that. Colorado, you know, you know, is an excellent example. You know, one of the reasons we, we did it for registered owners because that's our, you know, we're we're based in Maryland and that's our, you know, the Maryland law and and, and much of the East Coast uh, does it that way. So uh, we certainly once, uh, you know, once th- this takes hold and we gain uh, traction and there's interest and we prove that it that it is a is a bona fide safety device then uh, it's our goal to ultimately branch it out and, and provide uh, capability uh, uh, for those other variations of the law, if you will. I have done stories whether you should pay them or not pay them. I received one mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. I did not pay it. That's uh, I've talked to a thousand lawyers about yeah. this. The advice we give everybody is don't pay them yeah. at this point, right? I mean, not, not to say that it's not, that that's necessarily the right answer or the moral answer, but I think the common logic is just don't pay the thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so yeah i, I think yeah. that would be something you're going to run up against so like because that revenue presumably i, I think you're going to make money on selling the system but are you also going to be making some money on the processing of any citations that are served or is that something completely separate outside of your purview and your company yeah so we we've not uh, yet finalized how we're going to you know, structure the pricing. What we're looking at is a subscription-based uh, scenario so that, uh, if, uh, for example, some agencies may wish to utilize it as a local uh, enforcement tool so that they, uh, if they do have an actual uh, pullover and issue a citation, 
for, for a move over infraction. Um, they have uh, backup evidence, if you will, if it ultimately goes to court. Um, so, so some of that, uh, the, the potential there is to be on a subscription basis. If they need, uh, you know, if it becomes an, uh, an automated enforcement uh, type setup and they need processing capability, um, we will be able to do that. Although the, the, the way we're structuring it, the way the system is set up is that it's designed so that the agency can do it full turnkey on their own if they wish, where they can outsource it. Uh, the processing capability elsewhere. So, yeah, there's there's ultimately if if there's processing involved, there there would ultimately ultimately be some type of a fee uh, for that. But we haven't yet figured out how that's gonna how that's gonna look. Well, and at what point does this become a situation where you are directly in contact with manufacturers on a regular basis and just manufacturing specific models with these cameras pre-installed for tow truck companies or for emergency law enforcement organizations around the country. I mean, this seems like something where, especially for tow trucks, where I feel like they're in danger just as much, if not more, than law enforcement, where they they should have it almost mandatory, but it's going to be an uphill battle because so many of those organizations are mom and pop and probably don't necessarily have the money for a subscription service. Yeah, that exactly. And, and you, you have, bring up some excellent points. The, the we're we're, um, we're we're making some initial uh, we're having some initial discussions with some of the uh, uh, tow truck manufacturers, but right now it's, it's a little too early. You know, we're trying to prove the the technology and so forth. But yeah, you you hit the nail on the head that ultimately that would be a, 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 a an excellent idea to to include it with that. But of course, first the the it has you have to pave the way. As I mentioned earlier, uh, the states, they're, they're, in certain states, it's not enabled, you know, in many states. You know, so first of all, uh, uh, the, the, the law would have to specifically authorize uh, uh, photo enforcement of move-over violations. Uh, and then secondly, even once, once that's done, you know, there's a question of w- will that extend to tow operators? And, and you, you, you're absolutely correct. The, the tow operators and other uh, roadside workers are are seem to be affected far more significantly. I think the the numbers that we've seen are uh, uh, police officers about twelve per year on average are killed by uh, in relation to move over violate violations, uh, and roughly fifty to sixty uh, tow operators are killed. And we don't even know the injury statistic because they're not widely. There hasn't been any studies to show that, but, but yeah, there's 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 several uh, uh, obstacles to, to 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 clear that through. But ultimately, having them uh, uh, pre-delivered on the tow trucks would would be the the, the best solution in the end. <clears throat> and we we are both Joseph and I are both supporters of move over, and obviously yes. supporters of not only the law enforcement, any emergency vehicle that might be on the side, maintenance vehicle, tow vehicle that's on the side of the road. What has been the reaction to this system by emergency responders, by tow truck companies? What, what, what has been the reaction and the comments back to you from them? Every, um, and I'm, I'm trying to be, you know, uh, trying not to be overly, uh, you know, over the top with it, but, but in, in all seriousness, uh, uh, pretty much every, uh, a law enforcement agency that we've interacted with, and that includes the, the, the 20 or so that, 
that, that we already do other business with, as well as many others that we've talked to re- relative to this uh, in both the U.S. and Canada, uh, as well as, uh, I don't know, uh, probably 20 to 30 tow operators that we've either talked to or uh, done demonstrations with and so forth. Pretty much across the board, there's been uh, uh, support. Uh, now, in some cases, you know, there's, there's uh, uh, concern about a lot of the issues we've already discussed about how you might implement it, how they might pay for it, those kinds of things. But in terms of the concept, um, it's pretty overwhelming that they almost everybody we come across, uh, if they haven't been involved in a specific situation, uh, whether it's a trooper or a tow operator or whatever, um, they, if they haven't been involved, they, they at least know somebody uh, within their agency or within their company uh, that's been uh, injured or had close calls and so forth. So, so they all get it. They all completely understand the limitations of being able to enforce the law. Uh, uh, so they're, they're excited about the concept, and they, they, they want to hear more whenever we, we discuss it or present it. And usually that when they want to hear more, it comes down to, and usually the next question is, so how much is it going to cost me? So do you have a price structure set up yet for the actual camera and for the technology that then runs it? No, we don't. Um, we, we're still kind of trying to figure out exactly what the what you know what the optimum price point is. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, you know, we're a, a private company, so. Ultimately, uh, we, you know, we've got to uh, uh, earn money on, on the product. But at the same time, you know, the goal is not to, to, to gouge anybody. It's to come up with a proper price point because we're still, we're still dealing with manufacturing issues and many other aspects of the, uh, of the production and a lot of other uh, uh, elements that we have to consider before. And, and also, we're not exactly sure what the initial uh, ones who decide to, to, to embark upon the, the, a program, how, how, what they will want to do with it, uh, whether it will be uh, strictly a warnings-based program or whether it will include uh, uh, photo enforcement and, of course, the limitations that the laws uh, uh, in many states require legislative changes to do that. So there's a lot of work to be done uh, uh, on, on that front, coupled with the fact that we have to uh, kind of fine-tune everything before we can figure out the exact price structure. And you're probably not just going to have them on, on Amazon where I, you know, as a just a you know regular Yahoo can go buy it and then stick it on my car, right? <laughs> not, no, we're not intending to because, you know, even if, even if, uh, even if co-operators, for example, uh, de- desire to have them, uh, it's still going to re- almost, uh, always require some involvement uh, from not almost. I mean, it's going to always require some involvement uh, at the at a state level or with a police agency uh, in terms of any any kind of warning or uh, citation that's issued. So even if it's on a tow truck, it'll have to be connected in some way or authorized or approved by a, uh, a legitimate law enforcement agency. That just means I'll put more uh, dash cams around my car. <laughs> There's right. going to come a day in the near future where we all have 10 cameras on our vehicles. So. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, not, and it won't be too long in the future before you see that with all the autonomous vehicles and so forth.
That's right. Rod Hillman, the uh, President Chief Operating Officer of Breckford Traffic Safety, talking about the move over camera technology. Rod, fascinating stuff. Good luck with your uh, product. I hope it uh, is uh, well received by uh, the folks that uh, will be able to use it and keep themselves safer, and uh, we'll see where it goes in the future. Thanks for joining us here on the Driving You Crazy podcast. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. All right, that was that was pretty interesting. I um, I still think they have some legal challenges ahead for that system, but um, we'll see where that whole camera system goes. I mean, the question is, are we decades away or are we just a couple of years away? And I, I think that's really still up in the air. So we're recording this on the day after Christmas, and it's already been a very busy week uh, at the nation's airports. Get this. The TSA estimates, estimates, I can't say this word right. The TSA <laughs> estimates... They will have grabbed or scanned a record-breaking 46 million crotches this holiday flying season. Uh, That included the body-hugging hand slides as well. Perfect. And speaking of flying, here's a story I saw in the South China Morning Post. It's titled, Man Spreading on a Plane. In the age of Me Too, even the armrest is a gender politics issue. It was written by Kate Whitehead. She's a freelance journalist who writes for many publications. She's basically saying it's time to introduce women-only sections on airplanes and end the battle for the armrest once and for all. This is what Kate writes. If you turn left when you get onto a plane, stop reading now, you wouldn't understand. For those who turn right, this is for you. What I think she's talking about here are the people who board the large airplanes because they board near the middle or i guess like the, the first one third right, right. so if you go left you're going to the first class if you go right you're going back into coach mm-hmm. so i think that's basically what she's she's talking about there so kate whitehead continues one of the most contentious strips of land outside the west bank is the narrow space between the two economy class seats the armrest if the seat beside you is occupied then the armrest is intended to be shared It is, however, wide enough for only one elbow, which is where the problem arises, particularly if you are a woman. Nine times out of ten, based on my extensive experience flying cattle class, that's in quotes. Great name. If a man is seated beside a woman, he will claim the armrest. Not only that, but his elbow would protrude slightly into a woman's seat space, unless you're prepared to press your arm against the man's which will allow you to feel the rise and fall of his breath and is, I feel, a too intimate connection with a stranger, then you have lost two inches of your seat. With the average seat being uh, 17.2 inches, this means you have effectively lost about 12%. If you're unfortunate enough to be in the middle of a row and have a man on either side, you have lost nearly a quarter of your seat, and yet you are paying the same price as those space-invading men sure that's how she would have said it if she was reading it as well. The article from Kate Whitehead continues from the South China Morning Press. A male colleague claimed ignorance of this mid-air gender war. Is this really a thing, he asked, leading me to suspect that most men don't even realize they're doing it. There's an armrest, they claim it, and they think nothing more to the matter. It doesn't occur to them that a woman doesn't want to arm wrestle to reclaim her couple of inches of seat. I dream of a future in which there are women-only seating sections on planes. Most women intuitively understand that the armrest is neutral territory and leave it as a slim buffer between them and their neighbor. I'd be prepared to campaign vocally for pink rows, but I suspect airlines 
wouldn't be in favor because that would mean other rows full only of men. And that wouldn't work. Men and airlines depend on encroachment onto women's seats for comfortable travel. I hope that in the wake of the Me Too movement, people will come to realize that the airline armrest is a gender political issue. The first airline to establish pink rows will have my business. There you go. That again from Kate Whitehead in the South China Morning Press. What do you think about pink rows? I'm in. I'm in. You are? Yeah. Just have women only and men only sections? I'm just in for expanded armrests, man. I, I think this stuff is ridiculous. And it's not just a women issue, although I can understand why women would be the victims of it more often than men, because men are the ones who are perpetrating the crime. But, I mean, how many times have you sat in an airplane row, cattle class, and been arm to arm with another dude, and you're both, like, pressed up against each other's arms because neither one of you is willing to concede the territory? I will concede the territory. I will not concede the territory. I've got, I've gotten like militant about it a couple of times. Really? I felt like somebody, if somebody is on the armrest, like if I'm pressed up against the window or if I'm in the middle and somebody is like on the armrest to her point with the elbow in my seat, get the F out of there. Get out. Like that's my space. I can see that if they are encroaching in your space, but if they're just on the armrest, I'll just give it up. But if they come over into my area, then I might, you know, make some movements or something. Right. And, that, and that's where it gets uncomfortable. Because to her point, if you're arm to arm with a stranger, you are feeling, I mean, everything. My first reaction to this article was, I have to get this woman on the show. Yep. But the time difference between when we tape and where she is, is just, it's too, too great. It's like after midnight right now in Hong Kong. But if she eventually hears this, because we are worldwide, we are big in, in I think, that part of the world. Yes. Um, and she wants to come on. We'll, wor we'll work it out. We'll work out a time where we could speak with her about these pink rows. My next reaction was, wow, re she, she really hates men. Uh, she is really not a man lover. Um, so she probably wouldn't return my email even if I sent her one. Maybe if I sent it from Leslie, then she might... She might respond back to it. I get what you're saying, but like, think of the amount of times that men encroach on women's space, right? Like, it's it is pretty constant, and so from that perspective, yeah, I can understand why. It's the same reason we have, to a certain extent, women only bathrooms too, right? Because women don't need to be like next to men when that's happening. That's equally unpleasant. But I just heard somebody say on uh, on one of these Twitter things that said that. Uh, the, the only reason that there are different gender bathrooms is to sell more bathrooms. Get that. <laughs> okay. Sure. Look, I've had similar conflicts with people on planes. I, and I've done done plenty of flying as a as a regular guy. And usually since I'm I'm part of a family with my with my wife and kids, uh, they sit three together and then I am the one that's in the aisle seat sharing with somebody to my left who's in the center. Um, but I just let them have it. I just basically let it go. I don't worry about it. It's three or four hours of my life that I really don't care that much. Okay. It's Now, maybe if I was on a transatlantic flight and I'm going for 12 hours, uh, maybe I'd have to ha work out a little deal with my seat neighbor about what our personal boundaries are and, and how we're going to share the seat space. Business class. You know, yep. that sort of thing. But uh, honestly, I've, I've had others share it. I've had... The, the time where I've used it as well, um, I usually have turned it down if somebody says, hey, hey do you want to have your arm on this thing? Right. I'll say, no, you, you can go ahead. Uh, because I'm trying to turn the other cheek, Joseph. I'm trying to be a good guy and turn the other cheek. Okay. Or 
Bring in the elbow, if you will. Bring in the elbow. Bring like, it in. Take up less less space. I, I don't advocate a total separation of the sexes. They tried that, or they we, we talked about that, I think, in a sh- shows back in, like, the episode 60s or 70s, where they were wanting to do that. There was a rash of men on, I think it was in Tokyo, on the subways in Japan, yep. how they were groping women, and how it was very tough, if not impossible, to find out who the gropers were, and the women felt really uncomfortable with that, so they wanted their women-only trains, cars, uh, so they wouldn't have to deal with men groping them, and then you had to have the grope, because we talked about groping insurance, because some of the men had groping insurance, you remember that? Well, to prevent them from being fraudulently accused of groping, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Lie insurance. There you go. But, I, you know, I've been seated next to women who have... Who have you know taken over the armrest as well? So it's not just men taking over the armrest, uh, man spreading, if you will. There's been woman spreading as well. At least I've seen that. Now I looked at some of the comments that were attached to the article. Joker Joe said, "Perhaps try talking to them." Nope. Nope. Raggy Tiger One says, "How ridiculous is this? Next, it's women-only planes, then pilots and cabin crew. Grow up, ladies. The world doesn't revolve around you." Angry man. Jokester. 1972 says, two adults can decide for themselves or compromise their problem solved. Not that easy. And 1953 says, if a man's elbow intrudes into my seat space, I just gently edge my arm over until he takes the hint. But if that doesn't work, and he's a young guy, I just play the elderly woman card, a combination of entitlement and ignorance. Perfect. Born in 1953, not quite elderly. Uh, I think it's Llewellyn, says, this is, is this supposed to be satire? Only a little bit. (laughs) D. Perry 68 says, seems like someone has run out of anything original to write against a tight deadline, and this was the best she could come up with. You're a jerk and you're not a writer. (laughs) Artique 11 says, journalism? Go back to Facebook and moan there. Gross. Rick, Ricky Montalban (laughs) (laughs) nice fantasy island uh says i thought the unspoken rules are windows and aisle seats get the outer armrest the middle gets both inside armrest finally somebody who gets it finally when in doubt just ask the person instead of quietly whining about it but i think that's it maybe everybody gets an armrest if you have to sit in the middle maybe you get both and if you're on the outside you get the outside armrest that gets bashed into by the uh Flight attendants bringing the drink cart over. Yep. And then if you're at the window, you get the window and you get the armrest that nobody's ever going to touch. That was always my understanding, was that if you're in an outside area, you get your outside armrest, and if you're in the middle, you get both. Uh, Stitter Bosom says, I'm a man, and I feel equally awkward claiming the armrest. This article is sexist and violates basic decency. Not quite, but sure. And finally, Shazza says... Ha, ha, ha. So true. And and the male passengers tend to leg spread as well, which encroaches on leg space. Man spreading. Men. Can't live with them. Can't. Can't, can't keep their legs closed. Can't live with them. I still say just work it out. Look, there's so many other things to worry about in your life, like your kid finding out that Santa Claus isn't real. That is real life, people. Yep. Real life. How am I going to deal with telling Jay Lynn, my 10-year-old, that Santa isn't real? Very carefully. That it was me all the time putting in, you know, building her her dress-up stage. Start and with that. Start with, I've been lying to you for 10 years. Building the swing set and 
jungle gym in the basement, the trampoline, all these things that Santa brought. It was really her daddy. Mm. <sighs> you knew it all along. You oh, you knew this day was going to happen. And I think she's going to be good enough where she's not going to spill the beans for the seven-year-old. And that's what's really important. But yes, you need to make sure that, uh, make her feel smart about it, right? You knew this all along. Yeah. Well, I'll just let it, let, maybe in the summer, sometime in the summer, it's all going to go south for me. It's going to be the Easter Bunny, man. Or the next time she loses a tooth. Did they still lose teeth at the age Joel, of 10? Jay, Jolene does. Jaylen had one pulled and she got 20 bucks. That's pretty good from the Tooth Fairy. Never huh? mind. I guess the Tooth Fairy does exist. <laughs> well, there you go. Thanks for being a part of the show here. Ha, Merry Christmas, post haste, and uh, on to the Happy New Year. We'll be here for the New Year, and we will uh, continue on for 2019. So until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jason Luba, the Traffic Guy. I'm New Year's and fantasy character enthusiast Joseph Peters. Be safe, and as always, happy motoring. Happy motoring.